Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. We were made in your image. We were made by you. We were made for you. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Be merciful to us, gospel-abusing sinners. Help our souls to breathe after holiness. To possess a constant devotedness to thee. When temptation presents itself, give us grace to flee to your wounds. Father, open your hands now and feed us. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Quite a few of you read ahead. You read the text I'm preaching the week before or the night before I actually exposit it. After reading this text, you were certainly saying, I don't know what Kyle can do with this. <laughs> That's what I was saying in my study day after day. <laughs> Lord, what do I give your people from this chapter? There is no prayer in it, no praise, no dialogue, no prophet giving a word from the Lord. No areas where it seems like I can make applicable connections. No laughing, no crying, no joy, no sadness. In fact, no emotion at all. This is an emotionless passage. Just the cold, hard facts. Unlike next week's passage, which is dripping with emotion. Tears everywhere. The reader is constantly in the fields. Not here. No emotion. Just the facts. No singing, no preaching, no sin to avoid. No action to imitate. No doctrine taught. No theology emphasized. Yet, I think this passage will yield an incredible harvest in your soul. At first, it may appear there's not a lot of meat on the bone but you will discover some tender truths about your God. The meat that is present is nutritious and sustaining. Here's a road map for where we are headed. Four movements in the text, four ways this text should move you. Four movements in the text, four ways this text should move you. Now, the four movements in the text are these. God's king ruling from God's throne. God's king extending God's kingdom. God's king stewarding God's resources. God's king shepherding God's people. We will take them as they come, one at a time. First, God's king ruling from God's throne. 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 7. 2 Samuel, the entire book focuses on God's king and his reign from God's throne. You'll notice on the chart, the plot development of 2 Samuel, 
that 2 Samuel began with a dead king, Saul. But Judah quickly anointed David as their king. However, the other 11 tribes went in a different direction. Chapters 1 through 5 detail David's political triumphs. After ruling Judah for seven years, David eventually becomes king of all 12 tribes. He's now king of the United Kingdom. He will reign for 33 years. God's king ruling from God's throne. The last two weeks, we've looked at David's spiritual triumphs, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and in chapter 7, the pivotal Davidic covenant. We've moved from political triumphs to spiritual triumphs to now military triumphs. In fact, this text seems to be nothing more than a military report. Just a catalog of David's military exploits. There's a lot of blood and gore and war, but all in quick-hitting, emotionless writing. God's king ruling from God's throne. God's king extending God's kingdom. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. <laughs> David, he's been fighting with him the entire book. David finally brought the Philistines to their knees and took control of the coastline. He struck them down and subjugated them. He asked them, who's the man? And he made them respond, you're the man. Have flashbacks of what my brother did to me when I was a child. <laughs> when David became king, the Philistines were taking ground from Israel. That's not happening anymore. The first enemy, the Philistines, defeated. The second enemy, verse 2. And David defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. We are given this interesting account of a scene where the Moabites finally realize they can't defeat David in this battle. So they wave the white flag and surrender. David approaches the, the thousands of Moabites and he commands them to lay face down in three lines. Maybe they were all numbered. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. All of you ones over here. All of you twos, lay down there. All of you threes, over here. You've got maybe 5,000 soldiers laying side by side in this line. 5,000 soldiers laying side by side in that line. And the same for the third line. David then says to his captains, put to death the ones and the twos. But let the threes live. It seems this was only the fighting men of Moab, not the women and children. It also seems this was a random selection. David didn't select the strongest from the weakest or the youngest from the oldest. It's random. The, the ones and the twos go to the firing squad. And the threes live another day. The rest of the men, all the threes, and, and all the women, and all the children became David's slaves. 
They still worked and lived in their communities, but as a defeated nation, they were required to supply the conquering king with goods and services. They returned to work their own fields and produce grain and livestock. And this does seem rather vicious of David. We wrestle with these conquest passages of the Old Testament. Is this how God is building his kingdom? Through this type of treatment of POWs? And this guy is a prefigure of Christ? More like a prefigure of Hitler. Hitler had firing squads. The condemned POWs were stripped naked, led to the courtyard, men and women, and a small caliber rifle was placed at the back of their heads, and then it was over. They threw the corpses onto trucks that delivered them to the crematory. Are you telling me, Kyle, that David does a form of this? Yes, but with swords instead of guns. Some scholars say this, is, this act was actually merciful. I mean, David didn't kill all the men. He spared one-third of them. But I'm not interested in doing those theological gymnastics. I'm not seeking to sanitize this passage. I feel no need to do that. You can't judge the practices and actions of ancient warriors by modern standards. Commentators saying this was merciful is a big stretch. That's like saying, well, I only killed two-thirds of the Japanese. Not all of them. Very merciful. Remember, there is no emotion in this text. It's not meant to get into all of that. It is the bigger picture. We're not here to make our own independent judgments on David's actions. It is surprising that David was so brutal with the Moabites considering there was a family connection. David's great-great-grandmother was a Moabite turned follower of Yahweh. Her name was Ruth. David had a bit of Moabite blood in his veins. Looking at this situation militarily, David can't allow the Moabites to return home and full armed forces strength to possibly get some R&R and return to fight again another day. He had to seriously cripple the army, but not wipe them out completely because it would make it impossible for them to work the ground and provide tribute. David had other connections with the Moabite people, more recent ones. David actually placed his aging parents in the care of the Moabite king while running from Saul in 1 Samuel 22. David's elderly parents were easy targets for Saul. Saul could use them in a hostage scenario to lure David out. And David could not allow this, this possibility to exist. His parents were feeble and unable to physically endure the life of exile David was headed for. Ten years of it. They would not be able to run with David and his men to escape Saul. So David puts them in a safe house in the territory of Moab under the watch of the king. Jewish tradition, not the Bible. Jewish tradition attests that the king of Moab betrayed David's trust and murdered his parents. Maybe that's why we have this behavior from David. The first enemy, Philistines, defeated. The second enemy, Moabites, defeated. The third enemy, verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, 
the son of Rehob, Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. This man's name is pronounced so many different ways. Hadadzer, Hadadezer. I'm going to shorten it to Hadad. It was either that or the geezer Ezer. And I figured this was more respectable. David has conquered the Philistines, the Moabites, now the Arameans. Hadad was the leader of the Aramean coalition. And he must have a large chariot force because notice verse 4. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses but left enough for 100 chariots. David does not appear to kill these 20,000 infantrymen, but rather brought them back to Jerusalem with him and grafted them into his army. These men had to leave their wives and children, their mothers and fathers, their hometown, and become part of David's fighting force. And David asked the question, what should I do with these 1,700 horses? You've heard of POWs? Where there are also HOWs, horses of war. What is David going to do with all these horses he captured? I read a book once entitled The Perfect Horse. It was about a small troop of battle-weary American soldiers who embark on a daring rescue mission of priceless stallions kidnapped, or rather horse-napped, by Hitler. Hitler was stockpiling the world's finest purebreds in order to breed the perfect equine master race. And this was in the last days of the war and the, and the starving rushing army was closing in on the location of the horses and the horses were in imminent danger of being slaughtered for food. This was a mission to rescue the HOWs, the horses of war. What will David do with the HOWs? I would think he would take them and turn them on his enemies much like Ukraine is doing right now. They are capturing Russian tanks and using them against the Russians. But that's not what's happening in the text. What does David do with the HOWs? You animal lovers, close your eyes. David hamstrings them. He hamstrung the horses, which means he severed the large tendon in their leg, rendering them useless for warfare. He sent them into early retirement. Uh, the, the back of the knee of the hind legs has these tendons where, where if they're cut, the tendons are unable to heal and, and reunite properly. David didn't break their legs. He'd have to kill them if he, if he did so. He just made it where they had no speed and could not walk properly. The only use for these horses moving forward would be the farm. They became pack horses and reproductive horses. They could still produce labor, but David eliminated the risk of another army capturing these horses and using them against him in the future. David couldn't risk them falling into enemy hands. That This was a military necessity, not mere animal cruelty. Why didn't David implement the horses into his army and form a, a cavalry? Because... The Israelites initially fought in mountainous regions. They were the mountain people. Horses and chariots struggle in the mountains. 
War horses were of limited value to Israel. The cost versus benefit analysis proved it, it was a bad investment. I'm not sure why David hamstrung all the horses except for 100. Maybe David wanted to experiment with a, with a cavalry. I think he wanted to obey Deuteronomy 17, which prohibited Israel's kings from accumulating horses. David did not break the law. He did not accumulate beyond reasonable limits. David refused to put his trust in horses and chariots. He put his trust in the Lord. Now, the hamstringing horses could have been commanded by God. Some of you are like, oh no. Yes. It could have been commanded by God. God did command Joshua to do this very act years earlier. It was a customary war strategy throughout history. Verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Evidently, another group of people, the Syrians, heard of David's attack on the Arameans, and, and they ran to give aid, to fight against God's king. David killed 22,000 of them. Church, the main point of this catalog of wars is not chronology, but geography. In fact, this chapter is not in strict chronological order. The, the author here is not trying to put you in the narrative. Rather, he's laying out David's military victories, his catalog of wars. David won victories in every direction. Geography is the key here, not chronology. The, the Philistine wars gave David land in the west. The Moabite wars opened up land in the east. The Aramean wars gave access to land in the north. The, the Edomite wars gave David land in the south. At every point on the compass, God's king is extending God's kingdom. We've already watched all of David's battles except for the one in the south. And that's found in verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. David has just killed 40,000 military men in two verses. Verse 5 and verse 13. Crippled by heavy losses, the Edomites are forced to submit. Verse 14. Then David put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Conquering this area in the south allowed David to gain control of valuable caravan routes. The, the south gave him a trade monopoly on Arabia and Africa. There is one phrase here repeated two times in the chapter. The Lord gave victory to David. It's said in verse 6 and in verse 14. David is conquering because the Lord is protecting him and guaranteeing his victories. God's king ruling from God's throne, God's king extending God's kingdom, God's king stewarding God's resources. Look at verse 6. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David set up a puppet government in each place. And, and with his permanent Israelite military presence, 
it ensured no rebellion. These series of military campaigns conducted by David really reduced his enemies to vassals and, and tributary people. They fell under his rule and he forced them to bring tribute. The Moabites brought tribute, the Arameans brought tribute, the Syrians brought tribute, tribute from all corners of the earth. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. He's looting. David looted a great quantity of bronze. His, his victories are accumulating vast amounts of riches. Verse 9, when Toi, or Toi-e, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toi sent his son Joram, or Joram, there's like 15 ways to pronounce all these names, he sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. Now this is an interesting account. This toy story. You see what I did there? See what I did? Yeah, I'm accepting tips after. It's, uh, I only bring that out on, on uh, four-day weekends when it, people are going on vacation. And you're welcome. All right. Toy brings peace offerings to David. Toy is a bit of a, a diplomatic genius. He sends his son to ask David, Hey, David, I heard you had COVID. How are you recovering? Just checking on your health. The son says to David, Hey, my dad wanted you to know that he appreciates you taking care of our bully, Hadad. Hadad was beating us down. You saved us. You're kind of like our savior. So we, we brought tribute to you. Treasures, gold, silver, bronze, valuable metals. These are wise men bringing the king treasures. Jerusalem is now filled with treasures. They're, they're growing by the day, filling up the banks and storehouses, entire barns with gold, entire sheds filled with bronze, what is David doing with all this wealth? With all this gold? He doesn't get gold teeth. He's not wearing gold chains. He's storing it. Stewarding it. Saving it for a special day. Stockpiling it. Verse 11. These also King David dedicated to the Lord. Together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer. David doesn't keep the plunder, but dedicates it to the Lord. It all belongs to the Lord. David's victories enriched the treasuries of the Lord. Everything went into the temple treasury. Now why is David saving? So that years later, when Solomon comes along, he will have enough wealth available to build God's magnificent temple. David is leaving an inheritance for the Lord so that the Lord's people after him will be taken care of. According to the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 22 verse 14, David saves a staggering amount. 
7.5 million pounds of gold. 75 million pounds of silver. You remember, David wanted to build the temple himself. But God said, that's, that's not going to happen for you. You've got bloody hands. So David saved for the temple. He prepared for the work someone else would finish. David will hand the blueprints and the money over to his son, Solomon, having collected, organized, and sacrificed to have the temple built. God's king ruling from God's throne. God's king extending God's kingdom. God's king stewarding God's resources. God's king shepherding God's people. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. David was fair and even-handed in all his relationships. This is more than legality. This is pastoral. He shepherded his people like a shepherd king. No corruption was permitted among the leaders. The people were led like sheep, not herded like cattle. We actually get a peek into David's administration. Part of David's success as a ruler was found in his ability to assemble, train, empower, and maintain a good team, a good government. We find David's cabinet in verses 16 through 18. Verse 16. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Now, we know Joab. We have been watching him lead David's army for many, many chapters now. Verse 16 continues, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Jehoshaphat is more than a mere clerk. He controlled the royal archives. He's a historian. He kept the records. We know this guy still holds the same office during Solomon's administration. He actually outlasts David. Joab the general, Jehoshaphat the historian, and, and then in verse 17, Zadok and Abiathar, the religious advisors. Uh, Serula, the, the secretary, he, he advised the king. He, he charged him with, um, he was charged with keeping the king informed. Israel's cabinet has never been this big. The largest up to this point in history. Verse 18. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. But Benaiah was the head of the palace guard. Under him were these Carathites and these Pelathites, which were a group of foreign mercenaries that made up David's bodyguard. And, and David ends listing his cabinet by listing his sons. David's sons here, being listed as priests, has stumped commentators. Because his boys were not priests. They were from the tribe of Judah. And you had to be from the tribe of Levi to be priest. Scholars believe this is a mistranslation. And is speaking of his sons as high-ranking officials. There's really just one letter in the original language that could switch the word. In fact, in a parallel passage in Chronicles, it, it uses that other word for high-ranking officials. David's cabinet consists of two military officers two civil officers and two ecclesiastical officers. Two civil officers, Joab and Benaiah. Two civil officers, Jehoshaphat and Seruiah. Two ecclesiastical officers, Zadok and Abiathar. Now, we finish the exposition. 
Now we can faithfully move to the application. Four movements in the text, four ways this text should move you. Anytime we encounter the preached word, it should impact us. It should move us. We never encounter this word and leave unchanged. We never sit under the preached word as a mere intellectual exercise. We want our souls to be moved. So how does this text move our souls? Four ways. First, this text should move you to see God as the promise keeper. This text should move you to see God as the promise keeper. Why is God showing us these Middle Eastern wars? This is what I was asking in my study. Why is God showing us these Middle Eastern wars? You might be tempted to ask, is this chapter just another Middle Eastern power grab? There's never been peace in the Middle East, so maybe this is just more episodes in that long-standing conflict. Just more petty states fighting to control trade routes and wear the territorial pants. But we see these events in God's unfolding drama of redemption. The first thing you need to realize is that 2 Samuel 8 follows 2 Samuel 7. That's deep. That's what you pay me for <laughs> to bring out these deep truths. 2 Samuel 8 follows 2 Samuel 7. In chapter 7, God promised David victory on every side. Get out your compass, David. Victory on the west, victory on the east, victory in the north, victory in the south. This account shows you God kept his promise. Nothing can thwart the promises of God. Not Philistines, not Moabites, not Arameans, not Edomites. Finally, I've given you victory over all your enemies. The purpose of this chapter order, 7 and then 8, is so that you can hear God's promise before you watch it play out. Israel had a valid title to this land, often called the land of Canaan. It was theirs by gift of God. But enemies sought to prevent their occupancy of it. These battles are one of God's ways of fulfilling his promise to David. Everywhere Israel went, they were outnumbered and outgunned, but never outgodded. Just made that up, it's in the dictionary. Israel beats nations that are far stronger, wiser, and older than her. Armed with the Lord's assuring promise, David begins to develop his dynasty. He's, he's regaining territory lost under the previous reign. He fights with the Lord's promise in his hand. It's the only way to go through life. Clinging to God's promises and moving forward with confidence that he will keep them. Gordon Kelly reminds us that foreign wars have been the ruin of many a nation. But David was neither an adventurous nor a megalomaniac. He only waged the battles of the Lord. Peter Lighthouse suggests David doubled the size of his kingdom. Yahweh gave Israel a place, but not just any place. He gave them a roomy place, a place to stretch out in. The border of Israel 
as a result of these battles, was carried to the line of the Euphrates. So that promise made to God, made by God to Abraham was fulfilled. Unto thy seed I have given this land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. They are living in the fullest extent of the promised land. You see in chapter 8, God's people living in the land God had promised to them. This chapter, these wars, will occupy David's best years. They display his brilliance as a king. He succeeds at home with his wonderful leadership and government. And he exceeds, exceeds, succeeds abroad. David has established a small empire. Arnold says, the, the schemer of modern political scientists, that this moves Israel into the multinational state stage of development, that, that fourth level. And by the way, by the way, friends, do not misapply this text. This is not grounds for you to go out and claim real estate for God's glory. <laughs> Preachers taking these Old Testament texts and then giving it to their people as some success theology, that's abusing the text. I call them the you-can-do-it preachers. You can do it. That's what they say. You can do it. The Lord gave David victory over everywhere he went, and the Lord will give you victory everywhere you go. Who says? Where does the text teach that? This is the fulfillment of a particular promise. David had been told that his name would be great in chapter 7. And here in chapter 8, verse 13, it says David made a name for himself. He became famous. His prestige rose. His name was viewed as great. Second, this text moves us, moves us to look beyond God's king in 2 Samuel 8 to God's ultimate king. This text moves us to look beyond God's king in 2 Samuel 8 to God's ultimate king. You certainly can't read David's victories over his enemies and not think of this future king who will one day reign over all his enemies. 1,000 years after David, God sends his final king to earth. Like David, wise men will bring this king treasures. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like David, this king will extend his reign. David extended his reign, but it was still very limited. In fact, I don't say he had a true empire. If you define empire in the terms of Hittite or Assyrian or Babylonian or Persian empire, then the empire of David pales in comparison. David extended, but he still only reigned over a fairly small portion of God's earth. However... Jesus Christ will come and extend his kingdom to every point on the compass. He will go west until there is no more west. He will go east until there is no more east. His rule shall reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus will reign from north to south. He will rule over every inch of the new earth. There will not be one square inch over which he does not declare, Mine. David brought a few peoples to submit to his kingship. Jesus will bring all peoples to submit to his kingship. Jesus is the true and better king, the full and final king. David's reign longs for Jesus' reign. David's reign is the shadow. Jesus' reign is the reality. 
This is why Jesus preached, I am the son of David. This is why people cried out to him, son of David, have mercy on us. David ruled with justice, but not perfect justice. Jesus will come back and reign with perfect justice and shepherd his people for all eternity. This is the king your heart longs for. It is good to be ruled by this king. He's a shepherd king. He's a faithful king. He's my king. The third way this text should move you is this. It should make you realize God's king is ruling the world so you can cease to rule it. I'm counting on the Lord to bring this home to your heart. This text should move you to live life with this confidence that all things are under the control of God. Did you know that worry is just a lack of faith? Worry assumes you are smarter than God. It does. You worry because you don't know if something will turn out the way you want it to. You worry because you think you know how things should turn out and you're not sure if, if God will, will do it to your liking. It is not innocent. Worry is not innocent. Worry and anxiety are a grab at ruling the world. They, they, they try to grab the reins from God who really, in their mind, shouldn't be holding the reins. They should. Martin Luther had a friend, Philip, I think was his name, who suffered terribly from worry and anxiety. He, he was just always a mess. On one occasion, during one of his anxiety-filled, worry-filled word vomits, Luther had had enough. And Luther stood up, walked over to him, put his hand on his shoulder and said, Cease to rule the world, Philip. Cease to rule the world. I've been preaching that to myself this past year. Cease to rule the world, Kyle. Cease to rule the world. You may think there's not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of meat on this, on chapter 8. There's a lot of meat on this book. You need the zoomed out view that this chapter supplies or else you will get stuck in the details. The frustrating little small details of life. You can become very microscopic. You need to relax and see that your little issue is a very small part of God's unfolding redemptive plan. We get too emotional about it all. And this text rips you away from the emotional panic. I told you in the beginning that emotions are ab absent in this chapter. The text doesn't focus on emotions, just the facts. Why is that? We do know that emotions were involved in these events, these wars. Of course emotions were involved. In fact, in Psalm 60, David is very emotional about the whole Edomite wars. He even reveals that, that they started it. But there is, no there is no mention of David's emotions here. That's not the point of the chapter. It completely ignores them. It does that because it wants you to put your emotions in check with God's unfolding drama of redemption. 
The gospel provides you with the grounds, the motivation, and the power to think, feel, and live differently. You don't have to attempt to rip the reins from God's hand. You really can trust Him to rule the world. The fourth way this text should move you. God's final king will do more than a firing squad if you don't submit to him. Well, I can't believe David would, would do such a thing. I know some of these firing squad events in the Old Testament, these lay in three lines events, are they're challenging for the modern reader. But I want you to see that all these enemies of Israel set themselves against God. This wasn't just a mere border skirmish. They set themselves against the God of Israel. God accomplishes his ultimate purposes through the narrow history of Israel. Israel was chosen from all the other nations to display God's character. They were his pet people, the apple of his eye. In the Old Testament, to set yourself against them was to set yourself against God. It was to spit in the face of God's coming Messiah, King Jesus. Because Jesus was coming from Israel. God made sure Israel would not lose any of these wars. God made sure Israel would not be wiped out because his Messiah was coming through them. Friend, if you set yourself against God's king, you have something far worse than a firing squad awaiting you. You have the wrath of God in hell awaiting you. Dear one, repent and submit to Christ as king. Father, thank you for allowing us to open this book. It's the most unique book in human history because you wrote it. You wrote it to us, for us, but about you. And it has had its intended effect on us this day. We know more about you as a result of our time in this text. We love you. With an imperfect love, we love you. But we know you love us with a perfect love. So we rest in that. Let's stand together.